Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pilducci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gilef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Well, today we have a special guest joining us by Skype. Eugenie Scott is the executive director of the National Center for Science Education, the premier organization fighting for sound scientific educational standards in the U.S. Before joining the NCSE, she was a physical anthropologist um, at the University of Kentucky, University of Colorado, and California State. For her gentle but tireless promotion of evolutionary theory and the scientific method, she is referred to herself as Darwin's Golden Retriever, which is a name that I love. And she is also uh, apparently one of the few people who has caused Massimo to change his mind about something. <laughs> welcome, Eugenie. How, how do you know it was few people? But anyway, <laughs> welcome, Jeannie. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here. So maybe we should explain this this dog thing. You know, th- this is obviously a reference to uh, Huxley, uh, who was uh, famously known as Darwin's bulldog. Right. And then more recently, uh, an intelligent design proponent, I forgot his name, in the pages of uh, Philosophy Now, referred to Dawkins as uh, Darwin's Rottweiler. So, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we've got a whole menagerie even, here. Even before that, uh, um, and I think actually a, a more appropriate um, uh, canine reference, uh, and I, I don't remember who it was, but it was one of the British journalists referred to Dawkins as as Darwin's greyhound, and re- referring more ah. to his elegance. Than ah, it depends. <laughs> sort of, Depending yeah, on the your s- opinion, you have a Dawkins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is a dog that but, is appropriate for that. <laughs> but really, you know, but, you know D- Dawkins isn't a Rottweiler. I mean, you know, no. D- Dawkins is is actually a very polite um, uh, a person. He's um, I can think of a number of people that I might describe as, as Rottweilers, but um, that, that gets us into a whole other... <laughs> <laughs> that, that, whole we'll, other we'll save that for our special episode on gossiping about uh, the skeptical movement. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, what, what uh, we would like to talk today uh, to you uh, about is, for instance, uh, what, what has happened to the intelligent design movement since the Dover trial of, what is it, five years ago now? Yeah, how time flies. Uh, yes. 2005 was the trial, and actually that we, we really thank the judge for having such a fast turnaround in his decision. The decision came down in the same years, which was in December of 2005. So yeah, it's about getting up there toward five years. Um, of course, initially after Kitzmiller versus Dover, the Discovery Institute um, went into a great flurry of... Um, of, uh, uh, oh, it was an activist judge and it, it doesn't count and it's not important. But, you know, clearly, clearly, uh, this decision was such a powerfully written decision that um, it would be very, very difficult for any proponent of intelligent design to try to argue another Dover someplace. You know, we should be teaching intelligent design, let's go for it. Because it's clear that the, uh, the same arguments would, would be raised um, even if the uh, uh, proponents of intelligent design who did not testify for for the Kissmiller trial, the 
intelligent, the uh, Discovery Institute uh, faithful like um, Dembski and Meyer and those guys, even if they were allowed to test, uh, even if they allowed themselves to testify in a new trial, the the prospects are just not very good for success because the the judge just nailed them on so many legal issues. So they've pretty much given up um, trying to get intelligent design into the schools, but. Uh, they, they've retrenched to uh, a, a parallel strategy that they've been promoting for several years, actually, uh, even for a couple of years before Dover. And that is the, well, just teach students evolution, but simultaneously teach them that evolution is lousy science. Right. It's um, the what we call the evidence against evolution strategy, um, which, of course, there isn't any evidence against evolution, but that's what they're arguing. Well, it would be a and, very short uh, teaching session. Well, exactly. When when I a lot of times when I go to campuses and I lecture on this, uh, I'll because so much of the time my audience is composed of of scientists, and I'll say, well, you know, how many of your scientists? A bunch of hands go up. Okay, would you please after the lecture give me the list of evidence against evolution? And they all laugh because of course <laughs> there's no such list. But if you go to the intelligent design and the the creationist proponents and you ask them for the list of evidence against evolution, it begins to look very, very familiar to people like Massimo and I because it's the same old junk that they've been arguing for 30 years. Gaps in the fossil record. Natural selection can't do anything important. There's such incredible complexity in nature that natural forces couldn't possibly produce them. Evolution couldn't possibly work, yada, yada, yada. No transitional forms? Oh, yes, the gaps in the fossil record, transitional forms, the usual stuff. So, basically, what the Discovery Institute has been pushing is um, these Academic Freedom Acts, which uh, is a type of legislation that we're seeing popping up around the country. And, unfortunately, one state, um, uh, Louisiana, actually passed one of these AFA, Academic Freedom Act, types of laws. But it's an extremely clever uh, approach, really, because there's nothing um, overtly religious to to on the surface if you look at these acts, because they talk about uh, uh, academic freedom for teachers, uh, freedom to learn for students, um, fairness, exp- freedom of expression, of teaching all the evidence, critical thinking. They're they're couched in very user friendly terms, and there's nothing in there that that smacks of creationism, unless, of course, you know the history of this movement, in right. which case mm. the, the buzzwords leap out at you. So nobody, nobody would obviously, um, n- n- in fact, no scientist or science educator uh, would uh, say, no, I don't want to teach critical thinking. Or, you know, I don't, I don't. <laughs> but, but Raise the, your hands if you're against critical thinking. Right. <laughs> but the question is, uh, so, uh, uh, for instance, in the, the Louisiana statute, has it been challenged? And if so, on what, uh, what grounds? It hasn't, and it hasn't. Um, it's, it, we actually had a um, legal advisory committee meeting discussion about this to decide, you know, what about these bills, and my, the, the lawyers that we work with um, were reluctant to take on the um, Louisiana Act on its face. Um, figuring that because of the way it's written, it would be very unlikely that a judge would say that you had a case until the law was implemented. Right. Basically, that's the difference, as the law- lawyers will tell you, between a facial challenge and an applied 
challenge. Ah. We'd need an, an applied challenge, which means you have to find the teacher who's stepping over the line. You have to uh, find somebody in that classroom who's got standing to sue, who's willing to stick their neck out and sue like the Dover plaintiffs were, which is a tough thing to do. And then you have to, you know, marshal the, um, the, the case and, and uh, challenge it and try to convince a judge. Now, I, I know people do associate NCSE with the Kitzmiller trial, and, and it was a huge effort for us. And, and we, you know, the, the legal team was wonderful, and, and we were a big help and all that. But frankly, the last thing we ever want to do is go to court. I mean, this is something that's only uh, a last resort. Um, our preference is to try to solve these problems behind the scenes. So before they hit the newspaper and before pos- people's positions get hardened and no compromises is possible and all that. Um, so we certainly are not looking uh, in Louisiana or any place else for a lawsuit. Um, that said, um, it, you know, should some legal challenge to these Academic Freedom Acts come up, it's going to be a lot harder to muster than was the challenge, um, the facial challenge to the uh, Dover policy, which was, you know, very, you know, teachers shall do X, Y, Z. Um, these academic freedom acts tend to be couched in different terms, not saying teachers have to do this, but teachers can do A, B, and C, now, which makes it much, much more subtle. Now, does uh, any of these uh, studies mention explicitly, pick, pick explicitly on the theory of evolution or in, bio, in biology in particular? Oh, yes, they all do. Right. They all, right. They all sing about evolution, and actually there's, there's a... There's a branch of these, um, we have a whole phylogeny of, of academic freedom acts. You really do believe in evolution, <laughs> oh, don't you? Yeah. Oh, uh, that's terrible. We're, we're, we're convinced. Um, but we can trace most of the academic freedom acts uh, back to some laws that were proposed in 2004 in Alabama. And then actually the, Louisiana is sort of a, a new branch that was um, uh, takes slightly different approaches. But but some of these academic freedom acts, um, interestingly enough, bundle evolution with global warming, um, ah. with, um, uh, with uh, stem cells, and origin of life. Uh, so it, it's sort of the, the laundry list of things that the religious mm-hmm. right is not happy about. So but let me you ask you a question, actually, just uh, since, you, since you brought the, uh, global warming up. We, we actually talked about this recently on, on the show. But uh, one of the things that really does puzzle me is the following. I understand why the Christian right has a problem with evolution. I understand why they have a problem with stem research. I even understand why they have a problem with so-called origin science and all that sort of stuff. But why do they have a problem with global warming? I mean, what, what is the connection there? Well, it's much more subtle. And uh, part of it, of course, is just the, uh, the um, uh, political conservatism that often intersects. When we talk about the religious right, we're talking about religious conservatives intersecting with, with political conservatives, and that's, that's a potent mix. Um, part of the objection to global warming is that uh, it's considered anti-capitalist and therefore anti-American, uh, anti-business, etc., and so, therefore, uh, it should be opposed. But there is a, some, something of a religious um, opposition to it as well. And part of that is the idea that God did create the, the, the planet to be, to be perfect and to, you know, everything to be fine. And that... Because um, as we know, this is, in fact, a perfect planet. There are no tsunamis, no volcano eruptions, you know, no Yeah, well, no that, that was all the fault of, the, of Adam and Eve. If they hadn't right. sinned, then, you know, bad things wouldn't have come into the world. But, um, right. But couldn't it, it, be, it, it, we actually blame global warming on Adam and Eve? I mean, that would be fine, right? I don't think so. But no. I, th- because their position is that 
Well, you might try that as a new strategy. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, their position is that global warming is is a is not is a hoax. That that there's no global warming. That this is all just a bunch of made up science by a bunch of um, uh, you know an anti American activists and so forth. But there, there is something of an idea uh, back there, kind of undergirding some of the uh, some of the religious opposition to it that um, God would not let this happen to his creation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, th- this is foolish to worry about these doomsday scenarios because uh, certainly God is, is going to be, be protecting his creation and protecting us human beings as his most important creation and so forth and so right. on. The only, the only doomsday scenario is the one that God actually does want for us, the rapture. And then I, that, exactly. that's fine. Okay. <laughs> Post-rapture is the doomsday. Right. <laughs> rapture is the easy part. That's right. Do you need- I, I have a <clears throat> excuse me. I have a question that might might be a little naive, but given that the the facts really are on our side here when it comes to evolution, and as you said, there there really aren't any substantial um, problems with the evolutionary theory at all. Um, what would be so difficult um, in in addressing this in a court case? I mean, wouldn't it be kind of a, a sure thing for us, or no? You mean the academic freedom? Act yeah. Uh, because they are very, very careful never to bring religion into it whatsoever. Um, it, it's purely couched in terms of critical thinking, improving the students. Um, you know, it, it's a pedagogical argument, improving the students' critical thinking abilities or the academic freedom, freedom of speech of the teachers and so forth. Oh, right. I, never... I mean, I, I didn't mean about challenging the Academic Freedom Act itself, which seems oh, okay. to be so loosely worded so generic that we couldn't you know there's really nothing to grab onto there um but if if a teacher ever were to use that to implement that act as you said to um to challenge the theory of evolution Uh, then how this is yeah and this is where this is where uh it it would be possible to bring uh to bring a suit if you can find that teacher if you can find a plaintiff if you can you know if you can climb out of that 10 foot deep hole right there and and actually uh, be able to bring suit because the the probability is that a teacher today for all of that uh is is using this law down in louisiana as an excuse to bring creationist materials into the classroom um the trouble is finding this person so Ginny, you know. i i'd like to um ask you a question that i've been asked actually today earlier on, on a different show and uh and i want to i like to compare notes i'm not going to tell you my answer obviously first. <laughs> And, and the question is this. So you have been active uh, in this area for quite some time. You've been you know, at, a, at the forefront of, of the battle against uh, nonsense and pseudoscience. And, uh, and yet we don't really see, uh, at least broadly speaking, much of a, of a, of a statistically significant shift in, in how the population, the general population, sees these issues. If, any, if anything, uh, to some extent, things are getting a little worse over the last few years. Does that ever depress you? How, how is your attitude? How do you keep che- being so cheerful about these kind of things? Perhaps I have that peace that passeth understanding, Massimo. <laughs> no, I don't know. I, uh, um, um, pathological levels of optimism? I don't know. <laughs> I just, it, it, that's a real idiosyncratic kind of thing. I mean, some of us, some of us are just willing to, to keep on slugging, even, um, even though we know it's, it's a, you know, there's a lot of those, a lot of balls that are going to keep coming across the plate. But you guys do um, keep, uh, keep uh, to some extent, an eye on the actual data, on the actual statistics. Do you think that there actually is, in fact, a, a, you know, the, the, the situation in terms of pseudoscience is deteriorating, improving, yeah. staying the same, or what? I think for evolution, it is remained very, very constant. 
And that is because um, fundamentally this is not an issue of science. We can, we can shovel all the science we can possibly lift on top of the creation and evolution problem and we're still not going to solve it because the, the motivating factors are not predominantly a misunderstanding of evolution or a lack of understanding of science. The science is necessary. Uh, the understanding of how science works, the philosophy of science, if you will, is absolutely necessary. Um, but they're not sufficient. Uh, as far as general pseudoscience is concerned, I think we are making progress. There's much less enthusiasm for something like astrology than there was, say, 20, 20 years ago. Um, and and I, think, I think pseudosciences tend to go in... Um, in surges right now, there's a lot of popularity for, for you know, there, there's a lot of cultural popularity for, for uh, uh, zombies and vampires. But I don't think people really believe in zombies and vampires. But, you know, you see a lot of zombie stuff and vampire stuff around. Um, you don't see, you, you see a lot of enthusiasm for ghosts. But the, I, I don't think the, the percentage of people who actually believe in ghosts has necessarily gotten up. Uh, m- much higher than it was, say, 15, 20 years ago. Um, I-, I think we're doing better in some respects, but um, but uh, there there's a lot there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think I think as far as pseudoscience is concerned, um, a major contribution there is just encouraging people to you know think critically and think about how do we know, how do you analyze. Uh, this claim. Somebody says that uh, he can talk to your uh, your 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 depart your your departed loved one. Somebody can talk to your dead mother. Why would you believe this person? So we're, and we're in agreement. There's not enough of that. There, we're, there's not enough of those questions being asked. So we're in agreement with the Louisiana statutes. We want critical thinking to be taught in, in uh, public schools. Absolutely, right? <laughs> absolutely. Uh, the there, there's there's that that's completely the case. The trouble is. Why would you restrict critical thinking, or why would you focus specifically upon evolution for critical thinking? Yeah, I mean, you can you can think critically about photosynthesis. You don't have to say. Yes. I mean, the fact that evolution is singled out is is a, a clear sign that there is a, shall we say, an extra pedagogical reason for these bills. <laughs> to say the oh, least. that that is a very subtle way to put it—an extra pedagogical <laughs> reason. <laughs> Um, Eugenie, we have a, a comment thread going now on, on the Rationally Speaking blog uh, in response to the, the teaser that Massimo posted for this episode. Um, and so I, I, I wanted to get your, your take on, on the issue in this thread. Um, this discussion has been revolving, as uh, so many of our comment threads have seemed to recently, on whether science uh, has anything to say about supernatural claims. Um, there's been some controversy over the NCSE's decision to um, support modifying the the statement of um, about the theory of evolution to um, yeah, this was several years ago yeah this was several years ago. like ninety four or something that's right well, that's, <laughs> that's actually when we met ago. when we met that was in ninety eight yeah, right. I think yeah <laughs> right right so this I'm is uh, right but the general controversy over what um, Scientists yeah, the, the, should the big, say the big about issue. evolution, how they should describe it, um, and how uh, compatible they should make it sound with religious belief is still ongoing. Um, well, first of all, don't fall into the trap of saying scientists say this and religious people say that. 
Sure, sure, right. Because the, the, I mean, but it's real easy for us to fall into that way of speaking, forgetting that there's a substantial proportion of scientists who are also religious people, okay, um, and who are theists. Um, it, the distinction is not between, between science and religion so much as it is between science as an explanation of the natural world and supernatural explanations of the natural world. Right. Okay, and- when it comes to that, we win. Um, you know, it's not just that we've got the fossils, like um, like uh, what's the space black says, but <laughs> it's that we we have the techniques, we have the reliable ways. Science is really the best way of explaining the natural world. If you're trying to deal with something that's not part of the natural world, um, well, you know, how do you deal with that? Uh, science happens to be a way of of attempting to explain the natural world that that uses fairly specific kinds of ideas and I'm not going to get into a demarcation issue because I find that just crashingly boring and you know philosophers of science can dance around in heads of pins for days on this sort of thing hey be careful there everybody (laughs) (laughs) that's okay you're you're bilingual Ah, Um, (laughs) you know science and philosophy is your bilingualness Um, but what's I, I think I think everybody would agree that science deals with empirical in other words material matter and energy kinds of of information. Okay, that's great. Everybody agrees with that. Um, Science also comes up with its explanations by testing them. It's not just that you waltz into the room and say, you know, I think this works that way, and everybody says, yeah, wow, you're right. No, you have to demonstrate that your explanation actually works by testing it against the natural world, the empirical evidence. And how do you test stuff? Well, you test your explanations by holding constant some variables and varying others. And if you can't hold constant variables, it's really hard to make a good test. Now, there's a lot of different ways of testing. You can have sort of this direct experimentation, which is kind of what you learn in seventh grade. And there's statistical ways that you can control variables. And there's um, uh, indirect testing of very. I mean, there's all kinds of research designs. But basically, they have to do with you got to hold something constant. This is why I don't think that science can tell us anything about omnipotent supernatural forces because if there is a god if there is this omnipotent supernatural force how the dickens are you going to hold them constant in order to test any sort of claims about them this is why we tell the creationists that when they bring god into explaining the natural world they're not playing the game of science and the shoe fits on the other foot as well um this is why uh, non-believers can't say that uh, we can prove through science that there's no god um, the, the fact of the matter is, any explanation that you have for a natural phenomenon that you bring God into, or this omnipotent supernatural power or whatever, can have any possible results. You, you, you have no way of, of holding constant this, uh, this omnipotent power, so you can't say that you're really making any kind of a reasonable test. So, you know, part of it gets down to definitions. If you define science the way I define science, then, then science can't say, yes, there's a God, or no, there's not a God. Um, you just have to leave that to philosophy and theology. So to me, the real fight is between philosophy and um, particularly secular philosophies and religion, not between science and religion. Yes, one of uh, the uh, 
commenters on the on the thread um, uh, was raising this issue as um, as uh, Julia said, and uh, you know he was his point was he, this guy is a biologist, he's a, and he's a regular frequenter on uh, I think his, his nickname is Mintman mm-hmm. uh, for people that that want to look him up. Um, on the blog, and uh, his point was, well, but you know, uh, science can uh, test whatever um, whatever hap- has any empirical consequence whatsoever. Uh, if it turns out that you saw, you know, that the only explanation for lightning, for instance, was in fact Zeus, once you eliminated all other explanations, then it would be rational and scientific to accept it. And my response to that was, but where do you ever get to actually having exhausted all the possible <laughs> exactly. explanations? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that 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 sounds to me like uh, your your commentator is not using very very uh, lo- good logic at all. Um, that. The proper answer at that point is we don't know yet. That's right. Exactly. Um, and, and scientists are very good at saying that. Unfortunately, it doesn't work terribly well in the general public, which wants answers now. But, you know, we're always saying we don't know yet. Well, yes, I mean, what, part of the, uh, the, the idea here is that, you know, I asked, in fact, uh, in, that, in that thread, well, when was the last time you saw a scientific paper that in the discussion sesh- section had something like, well, we don't have a good idea why we observe what we observe, so God is a possibility. <laughs> you, you never hear that. You never read, read that. In fact, if, uh, if a, a scientist were ever to write a paper like that, it would be immediately trashed by uh, the editors and for very good reasons. Well, I, what I think Mintman was arguing, and, and if I'm correct, then I agree with this, uh, is that the, the proper distinction is not really between the natural and the supernatural. It's not like slapping a supernatural on a claim makes it suddenly outside the bounds of science, but that the distinction is between things that you can um, test and, and reasonably falsify based on our understanding of how the world works and things that you can't. So you could, you could essentially make the same uh, excuses for, for materialist or natural claims that you could for the supernatural claims. You could always come up with some explanation like, um, well, you know, homeopathy doesn't work when you study it or, you know, it, it, uh, yes, but that only means that there are two levels of inaccessibility to science. I mean, science cannot deal with the supernatural. That's one level. And the reason for that is precisely, as Ginny said, that the supernatural essentially means anything goes. You have no, uh, you know, no reliability, no repeatability, because it's, it's, it can be, it can be doing whatever the hell he wants for whatever reason. You cannot constrain. Exactly. It cannot be constrained. But it also has, there's also a second level, lower level of epistemic limits to science, uh, which is the one that Julie is, is uh, um, addressing, which is there are some questions that are perfectly within the realm of studying natural processes for which, however, we simply don't have access to enough evidence, and so we're not going to find an answer. But, uh, but mm-hmm. that's simply an, an indication yeah. of the We fact. don't know yet. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, yeah, but, but always drop in the yet, because that at least leaves the public with the idea that uh, it's not a mystery. It's something <laughs> we don't know yet. That's right. Yeah. That's a good word. Well, it gives us hope. This discussion that pathological optimism again. Yes. <laughs> this, this discussion has been has been going on and on intermittently for a while. But I'm going to leave it here just because Jeannie, I have so much respect for you for for successfully uh, bringing Massimo around to your point of view on this subject a few years ago. Um, and I'm excited to see what pick you've uh, brought to the table for the rationally speaking picks. And it is one that that some of your. Um, uh, listeners might be kind of surprised at but remember that the that the the pick is not necessarily something that you really like it's something that you think people ought to look at we'll find, okay. out, what uh, we'll find out in a second after the break okay great welcome back 
Every episode, Julia and I uh, pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. But when we have a guest, uh, the honor of the pick of the episode goes to the, to the guest. So, Jeannie, what was your pick this time? Well, as long as you and your uh, listeners understand that a pick doesn't necessarily be, have to be something that you agree with or like, I think that your listeners should really check out the website of the Institute for Creation Research. This is icr.org. This is the um, most respected of the creation science organizations. It's been around since the mid-1960s, and it is really considered the, um, the, the grandfather of the movement, shall we say. Of course, Alas, the movement has split off and there's many, many other sites. There's even a, a larger organization called Answers in Genesis. But the ICR is really the, the grandfather of the movement, so to speak. It's the product of the great Henry Morris, who uh, pretty much invented creation science back in the 1960s. Check out the website because you'll find that even for scientists, it's got a lot of infuriating information on it uh, or misinformation is from our standpoint. You have to admire the fact that this is a very complete website. It's written in a very accessible fashion. It's easy to navigate. And they have lots and lots of stuff there that accomplish their goals, which, of course, is what a website is supposed to do. Their goals, of course, are to um, denigrate evolution and promote creation science. And, of course, uh, it's a conservative Christian organization. So the ultimate goal is to try to uh, bring people to their religious views. But it's a very well-done site, and um, check out icr.org and get a little bit of an idea what the, um, what the uh, opposition has uh, in you, mind. If you don't mind, I was just looking at it, uh, and uh, there's one of the, one of the um, uh, links from the uh, main page at this point uh, is um, an article called Baby Morality Defies Evolution. Yeah. And, and it's great <laughs> because it's, it's a classic creationist logic, and I use logic in, in uh, sort of a broad and um, very non-specific term. Uh, so he says, it is fascinating how quickly human babies learn about the world around them, but how soon can they distinguish good from bad? Some Yale psychologists wanted to find out, and their research results fly in the face of Freud and other evolutionary humanists. That's an interesting phrase right there. Freud, which, of course, has been out of fashion in, uh, in psychology for a long time, and it certainly it hasn't been in evolution for a long time. The, the interesting thing is that then they go on uh, with what to me would seem to be a pretty good uh, source of, uh, you know, type of evidence in favor, actually, of evolutionary explanation, because they're puzzled by the fact that the babies can make moral, they seem to be make moral, make moral distinctions very early on. Uh, you know, before they have actually a possibility of learning that culturally. And so they say, where does it come from? Where does that ability of uh, making very early decisions come from? Well, if it were an instinctual decision that resulted from uh, uh, evolution uh, that, that we had in common with other social primates, that wouldn't be much of a surprise for why it, that, that we have that, that sense. It's, it's a really fascinating article. Oh, it is. It, they, and yes, the commentary on science um, news articles is always quite... Um, Quite fascinating, just the the spin that they will give it uh, to to make it accord their point of view is is always interesting to say the least so, on the other hand, you can go to ncse's website, which is ncse.com for the other point of view, shall we say. <laughs> so Jeannie, I've got a, a question about this this is this website is uh, unabashedly explicitly um, Christian, whereas I had the sense that the movement has has tried to distance themselves from the uh, explicitly Christian arguments, and instead, as you said earlier, has just focused on um, on 
trying to debunk evolution and hoping that other people will will fill in the blanks themselves. So is, does this website no longer really represent the mainstream of the intelligent design movement? Well, this is creation science, not intelligent design. And uh, intelligent design has tried to distance itself from the more specific sectarian position that ICR takes for mm-hmm. Answers in Genesis, which are just completely upfront about their, um, their the Christian foundation and, and the goals. Um, in fact, there's an interesting um, a little bit of sniping that went on back in the early 2000s uh, between the ICR and the Discovery Institute, where the ICR just sort of got tired of, of the Discovery Institute approach and concluded that, that the although the intelligent design movement was was um, you know was a very valuable one they just were they were insufficiently biblical for, for the ICR. They they really didn't agree with their approach at all. Um, I love that phrase, insufficiently yeah. biblical. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I I like that too. But the the um, you also have to distinguish between the public face and the private face. If you look at the um, at the uh, uh, intelligent design supporters' communications um, uh, to the faithful, shall we say, they, they are they are more explicitly religious than to uh, something like the school boards or the state legislatures. Uh, one thing that I, I should probably mention quickly, we, you asked, we started out this conversation, you asked me what is the intelligent design um, movement doing nowadays. Um, one thing that specifically the Discovery Institute has been involved in is producing a new small book called Explore Evolution which they might as well call Explode Evolution. Um, and this is a successor to the Of Pandas and People book that uh, featured in the Kitzmiller case. Um, the purpose of this book is to be used in um, uh, courses uh, that they would like to have taught, where you present evolution from your standard textbook, and then you assign them Explore Evolution uh, to give them the other point of view. You know, why evolution is really weak science. Why homology, for example, is, a, uh, is, is not, a, is not a, a coherent idea and doesn't really support evolution and like that. Um, and it's been very interesting to watch the, um, the uh, Texas uh, science standards uh, dispute of 2008-2009, everybody's more familiar with this year's Texas standards dispute over social science. There's one every year. Crazy things. Yeah, they, well, there's a new discipline every year, and <laughs> yeah, we, we, thought of, we thought the science standards were fun last year, but they weren't nearly as much fun as uh, history was this year. <laughs> but basically, uh, the science standards that are now um, uh, in place in Texas do require... So they're they're worded so that they're not quite as blatant. I mean, we we were very successful in that regard. We and our allies in Texas in in keeping the absolutely worst of these standards proposals from being passed. Um, but there's still enough bad stuff in the science standards that a teacher who wanted to could very nicely bring in Explore Evolution to the classroom and claim that she was following the standards. So that's wow. one of the things that we're trying to monitor now, that um, whether or not Texas will, will um, uh, approve the uh, Explore Evolution for, as a supplement in Texas in the next uh, couple of years, um, which, of course, would greatly improve the coffers of the Discovery Institute, I'm right. sure. <laughs> 
Well, Jeannie, we're, uh, we're running out of time for this episode, but it's such a pleasure to have you on the show reporting back from the, the front lines um, of the battle against nonsense. And, um, and it's great to have a, a golden retriever like you uh, <laughs> out there <laughs> representing uh, reason and science. Thanks Thank so much. Good. It was a lot of fun being on your show, and I'm, I'm very pleased you asked me. Thank you. This concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>